Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning in to another week of Crime on Caffeine. Today, we'd be sipping on Coffee Bros Cold Brew. Again, I got mine on Amazon. Apparently, I shop on Amazon too much, but it is so good. It has like dark chocolate, berry, some brown sugar. Mm, so good. Yeah, this one's really good. I barely need any creamer with it. All right, so we are going to be hearing a case from Allison today. I've heard parts of this case, but I couldn't really get through it because it was really sad and very frustrating. Uh, So I'm going to be hearing a lot of this for the first time today. I might cry. You will cry. I probably will cry. So yeah, Allison, tell us about the case. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so today we are going to be going over the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. On June 12th, 1977, the tragic murder of three young girls happened at Camp Scott near Locust Grove, Oklahoma. Camp Scott spread across 410 acres of land and hosted about 145 girls every summer in like two-week increments. That's exactly how like my camp was when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was in the middle of gosh darn nowhere. Sounds about right. <laughs> and there was woods everywhere, and the camp was even fenced in. There was woods everywhere. There was woods everywhere. It's a camp. <laughs> yeah, in the woods. <laughs> the camp was fenced in and had a big gate at the front of it. Uh, apparently, it was really sturdy and tall and secure, and it was meant to keep people out and animals out. Funny, huh? <laughs> so this particular year at Camp Scott, there was about 140 girls that arrived for camp, and they were kind of divvied up into 12 units with seven or eight tents in each. Um, tents? Yeah, tents. Okay. Not cabins, tents. Okay. Uh, they were separated by age. The youngest campers were in the... Kiowa unit. I hope I'm saying that right. Some people say Kiowa. Some people say Kiowa. I think it actually might be Kiowa. You know, light me up on social media about it and let me know what the heck I'm supposed to be saying. For the sake of the episode, I'm going to say Kiowa because I think that's the correct pronunciation. The tent that we will be discussing is tent eight, or in some cases, some people called it tent seven because depending on what source you're looking at, some people counted the counselor's tent as a tent as well. So I'm just going to call it tent eight because that's really what I saw most of the time. As I discussed, let's talk about these tents for a second because they're a big no in my book. The tents were just literally a wooden platform that was like 14 by 12 and just had a fabric tent on the top of it. Yeah, (laughs) that's what we see that at my overnight camp. That's crazy to me. Mm -hmm. Like when I went to camp, my parents were even like, eee. And it was like an actual cabin. Mm -hmm. Actually, they even asked one of the parents, and they said if they had saw the tents before, they would not have let their kids stay there. My parents said, bye, have fun. (laughs) They said, Erica, peace. (laughs) So let's get into these perfect little campers. Um, The three girls that we're going to be talking about today are Doris Denise Milner, goes by Denise Milner. She's 10 years old. Michelle Gose, she is 9 years old. And the youngest is Lori Farmer. She is eight years old. She was actually the youngest one at the camp. They babies. Just babies. Just to give you a little background about them, Denise Milner is from Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was said to be one of the kindest and sweetest little girls you'd ever meet. In fourth grade, she won an award for having the highest grades, so she was a smarty pants. Taught herself to read and write by the age of four. I'm sure I was an idiot by the age of four, so... (laughs) 
She was a bright, shining star. She loved gymnastics, and she loved her little sister, who she did not want to leave to go to camp. I know. It makes me really, really sad. Uh, She saved up all her money from selling Girl Scout cookies to go to this camp, and uh, at the last minute, all of her friends that she was doing this with decided they weren't going to go, but she decided that she would. Next, we're going to go over Michelle. She is from Broken Arrow. She loved to read and was very close to her family. She wanted to be a math teacher just like her mom. She wasn't very outgoing and mostly felt like, you know, kind of to herself. And she loved to play soccer and raise plants. Oh, my God. Yeah, she was a little gardener. A she baby left. botanist. Yes, she was a little botanist. She loved her little African violets at home. It just... It's cute either way. Yeah, it's cute. She probably liked trees too. It's fun. Exactly. So she was either playing soccer, raising her little African violets, or she was, you know, with the Girl Scouts. She had actually been to Camp Scott the year before. So she was a veteran. And then our youngest is Lori Farmer, who was eight years old. She is also from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I mean, the amount of information you can find on the internet about this cute little girl. She was amazingly brilliant, like super-duper smart. She skipped the second grade and had a mental age of 10 with, like, a super high IQ. It makes me very sad. Yeah, she would have been a bright, bright, bright human. This makes me really, really sad. (laughs) So her mom was really guilty about um, sending her to camp. Lori didn't really know which camp to go to that summer, and so her mom chose the camp for her. And her mom is like, has to live with the fact mm-hmm. that she sent her baby to that camp, you know? That's really sad. That's so sad. She could have never known. I know. And they were actually planning on coming to surprise her for her birthday uh, while she was there. So that too is like just freaking heartbreaking as it is. All right. So Denise's mom actually wanted her to try out the camp Denise didn't want to go at all. And she was super upset and had a breakdown on the bus. Her mom came onto the bus and told the counselors, like, make sure if Denise wants to call me at any time that she can. Um, Later on in the night, uh, before dinner, I guess, maybe. I think it was before or after dinner. She did actually ask one of the counselors if she could call her mom. And they Please don't tell me they said no. They said no because they thought it was like one of those situations where it's like, oh, it's your first night of camp. Everything's going to be okay. Like, we'll call her in the morning if you're still feeling that way. Okay, so these three girls ended up bunking together because most of the tents were already filled up with girls who already knew each other. um, And they were kind of the leftovers, which makes me kind of sad. (laughs) I know. There was actually a fourth girl that was supposed to be in their tent, but because of some kind of administrative error, she slept in another tent for the night, which ended up literally saving her life. I thought you were going to say she didn't go. I was going to say, was it Dolly Parton? No, it wasn't Dolly Parton. Do you mean Kristen Chenoweth? Oh, it was Kristen Chenoweth. So yes, fun fact, Kristen Chenoweth, the Broadway and you know, huge actress was supposed to be at this camp. If you listen to, um, okay. So according to killing it on Broadway, Kristen Chenoweth actually went on their podcast and told them that she was supposed to be at this camp the same year that all these little girls were murdered. She got like really super sick, like right before the camp started. So fun fact about that. All right, so the girls had dinner at about 5 or 6, and then on the way out of the dining hall, freaking skies open up, 
it starts downpouring. Uh, they told the girls to like go to their tents, write some letters to home, um, telling whoever they want to write letters to about their first day at camp. These are the saddest letters of all time. Oh, great. Denise Milner. Let's, we'll, we'll start with hers. Dear Mom, I don't like camp. It's awful. The first day, it rained. I have three new friends, Linda, Lori, Michelle. Michelle and Lori are my roommates. Mom, I don't want to stay in camp for two weeks. I want to come home to see Kathy and everybody. Your loving child, Denise Milner. Your loving child. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. And she wrote in little cursive. Okay, the next letter is from Michelle Cosé. She's the nine-year-old. <laughs> she wrote to her Aunt Karen, which is actually really cute, I think. I have an Aunt Karen. Oh, my gosh. Aunt Karen. Mm-hmm. I have a Thea Karen. Dear Aunt Karen, how are you? I'm fine. I'm riding from camp. We can't go outside because it is storming. Me and my tent mates are the last tent in our unit. My tent mates are Denise Milner and Lori Farmer. My room is in shades of purple. <laughs> Love, Michelle. I guess they say their first and last names. I know. These are all of my friends and all of their names. Okay. And my room we- is purple. <laughs> my room is purple. My room was purple growing up, too. Same. All right. And then we have Lori Farmer. Dear Mom and Dad and Misty and Joe and Chad and Kathy. Oh. We were just getting ready to go to bed. It's 745. We're at the beginning of a storm and having a lot of fun. I've met two new friends, Michelle Gousset and Denise Milner. I'm sharing a tent with them. It's starting to rain on the way back to dinner. We're sleeping on cots. I couldn't wait to write. We're all writing letters now. Because there's hardly anything else to do. With love, Lori. It kills me. She wrote writing letters like writing. Like she was writing a letter, not writing oh, it. Oh, no. It's so sad. It makes me want to cry. The rest of the letter was very well spoken. I know. So smart for these little girls. So, obviously, everybody wrote letters. And then, you know, they were told to go to bed. Because, you know, still storming. There's no reason so, sorry, they didn't have counselors in the tents with them? No. So, the counselors had a tent of their own. Would it have been smart to put a counselor in each tent? Yes. But they were all in the camp tent, their own. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were in the camp tent, their own. <laughs> I'm sorry that this case makes my head go in a million different ways. I could barely even write about it. It's been a long let day. Let alone talk about it's it. It's been a long day. Where's my coffee? Okay, so at 1230, a counselor named Carla Willett heard some girls laughing from the bathroom. Uh, she went to go check on them and bring them back to tent one. She said, guys, what the heck? Why are you in the bathroom? Let's go back to the tent. Just, you know, young girl stuff. Just at, girls being girls. Girls being girls. At 1.30, Carla, again... And another counselor heard some giggling from tent four, and then she heard some weird noises, kind of like from the perimeter, like around the forest, like kind of a low, like moaning situation. Yeah. So she put like her flashlight towards there and it stopped immediately. So she was like, okay. She also saw a very dim light from the forest. So when she put her light on it, it turned off as well. So some things are happening here. It is the middle of the woods, so... Animals are not in the woods holding dim lights. You're not wrong. That is where you go tell somebody. Mm. 
Okay, so when she, you know, flashed her light at it and it turned off, she kind of freaked herself out a little bit. I would have been freaked out too. So she told the girls in tent four to be quiet and then like ran back to her tent, booked it. She said, "Mm mm-mm, not dealing with this. So during the time of sleep, there were some items stolen from the tents, they realized. Purses, eyeglasses, hold that, hold on to that tidbit of information, eyeglasses. Um, More people actually reported seeing a dim light near the Kiowa unit as well. Some campers even say that they heard screaming but ignored it because they thought it was just girls being girls, like we were saying, but no one went to check on it, which I find, you know, really hard to believe. Why would you not? You checked on girls giggling, but you heard screams and didn't check, so that that rubbed me the wrong way. This, hold on to your sweatshirt, around 2 a.m., the unit next to Kiowa heard a girl scream, Mama, Mama. So this is like a separate set of tents, like an older group? Okay. Yeah. Um, and then... And did anybody do anything about no, it? No. Okay. No, they sure didn't. Okay. Uh, and then in tent okay. six, a girl woke up to a man peering into their tent with a bright flashlight, stared at the girl, and then walked away. I'm sorry. Yeah. A man was staring at a girl in tent six. Woke up. She woke up to a man staring at her with a flashlight. Okay, she was probably terrified, so I don't blame her for anything, but holy... Yeah, so scary. Why did he... (laughs) I mean, I have no idea. 6 a.m. the next morning, Carla wanted to get to the showers first. The showers were kind of in a blocked view, so if you were in the counselor's tent, you're looking directly at the showers, and then the tent we're talking about, the Kiwi unit... That's behind the showers. So if you're in the counselor's tent, you can't even see their tent. So not only is there no counselor with them, she can't even see them, Mm -mm. see if they're there, see what they're doing. Sure can't. Who who designed this? Who looked at this and said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's just leave a bunch of nine-year-olds unsupervised, unprotected. I, I honestly have no clue. It's just baffling to me. So as she was walking, she noticed sleeping bags near the road, probably about 150 yards from the last tent, and past the counselor's tent. That, unfortunately, is when she sees the body of Denise Milner, nude from the waist down. Her hands were bound with tape and cord, strangled with cord, and um, yeah, the other two sleeping bags were zipped up so they couldn't see what was inside of them. But Denise Milner's body was laid on top of the two sleeping bags, uh, half naked. Okay, so she was strategically placed like that, just Denise. Yes. So she runs to tell the counselors to check the tents, and they see the girls in the last tent are missing. They immediately run to get the nurse and then run to get the camp directors, Barbara and Richard Day. Um, Richard immediately took the third sleeping bag and placed it over Denise's body so nobody would see her little naked body. So I thought that was really nice of him to do. They obviously called the police, and the police opened the sleeping bags to see the bodies of the other two girls. They died of blunt force trauma to the head. Both were killed inside the tent. There was massive amounts of blood and splatter all over the tent. Michelle was bound in like a hog tie, Oh. Yeah, and Lori was not bound at all, actually. Denise was said to be taken into the woods and murdered, so she was basically walked past the counselor's tent and killed. Denise and Michelle were both raped. Lori was inconclusive and did not have nearly as many injuries as Michelle and Denise. 
So all three were sexually assaulted, but only two of them were raped. Found um, near the tent were beer bottles and a crowbar. Okay. Yeah. Was the crowbar what caused the blunt force trauma? Um, it is not said yet. Sorry, I keep asking questions. <laughs> keep asking questions. Keep being curious. <laughs> so Michelle, Michelle was killed by association. 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 Autocorrected. No. I mean, it made sense. <laughs> no. Michelle was killed by asphyxiation. <laughs> Autocorrected me dirty there. It made friend. sense. It made sense. And um, a fabric handmade gag was stuck into her mouth. Oh, no. And in some reports, she was said that uh, she was blindfolded. Denise had a body temperature of 70, but the other two were still showing signs of rigor mortis. The autopsy showed weapons were used with a left hand and a right hand, as well as different types of knots were tied. In my head, immediately, mm-hmm. I went to, there's got to be more than one person. You don't just switch hands. Yeah, no. And you don't just switch knots. You're not like, oh, yeah, maybe I should try this knot out. No. Obviously, immediately, they had to shut down the camp, but they didn't tell the campers what had happened. What they told the parents was that an accident happened. Wait, what parents? All the parents or the parents of the victims? At this point, they're telling all of the parents. Okay. Like, there's been an accident. They didn't say which girls died. They just said girls died. So the parents are all freaking out. They're showing up to this camp to pick up their kids. They don't even know if they're picking up their kids or not. So Lori Farmer's parents actually couldn't be contacted because they were both at work. Um, so the emergency contact of the family, who was like a family friend, was the one who had to tell them. Oh, my God. The Girl Scout executives actually called their insurance and their attorney before they called the girl's parents. Oh, to cover their own asses. Like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? I mean... If I was the parents and I heard that, you'd be... Getting my boot right up your ass. It's all their fault, so, I mean... I mean, honestly, it says, like, all of the parents basically saw it on the news that their children were actually murdered. Like, they had no idea. They thought it was an accident. They found out from the news. Yeah, that it was a murder, not an accident. Yeah, see, this is where I cry, because I can't even fathom. Imagine watching the news and seeing that your kid's dead. Yeah. Like, they knew that their kid was dead, but they were like, oh, like, it must have been an accident. Like, no one's telling you, but the media knows before you do. How does that freaking happen? It just makes me crazy. They handled that so wrong. So bad. Literally so bad. So on June 14th, they actually took the wooden platform of the tent and airlifted it to the crime lab since the floor was kind of, like, covered in blood. Um, Lori and Michelle's blood. There was evidence that the killer tried to wipe it up with, like, a towel in the mattress. I don't know if maybe, like, for a second they realized, like, oh, my God, I just murdered three kids. Like, maybe I should wipe this up. It just doesn't make sense to me. Oh, I made me. a mess. Let me clean it up. Yeah. So they actually found two different bloody shoe prints inside and outside of the tent. Um, in addition to the shoe print evidence, there was said to be a flashlight, duct tape, cord. They gathered all of those items. So we have... Two different hands, two different, or multiple knots, and two different shoes. Mm-hmm. We sure do. Again, near the bodies, they found a big red 6-volt flashlight, and it had, like, a weird cover on it. It had, it had, like, a lens and a pinhole. 
so that it would cast a dim light, similar to the one that the camp counselor had said Mm. she had seen. Remember this flashlight for later. This flashlight plays a a role in many different parts. Okay. So um, inside the flashlight, there was actually a wadded-up newspaper to make sure that there was no noises, and there was also black electrical tape found. Although there was a lot of contamination. <laughs> okay, there was said to be a lot of contamination in the crime scene from the federal agencies and the police. People were just walking all over the place, not realizing what the heck they were doing. What? I, sw- I swear to goodness. The more I research about crimes, like, the more I realize, like, where are the procedures at, y'all? It's always the super messed up cases, too, where... Yeah, there's always some kind of shit the going police on. police fucked up the investigation. Like, didn't follow directions, didn't take a sample or something. It just drives me nuts. Okay, so the ranch of Jack Schroff was located just west of Camp Scott and was one of the first places that police decided to look into since, you know... He said that some of the items were stolen from his cabin and they were linked to the murders. A little sketchy, Jack, but maybe they really were stolen. He later passed a lie detector test on June 17th, so they ruled him out. Because of the way the article was printed in the Tulsa Tribune, readers assumed Jack was a suspect. So they were like sending him death threats and harassment and he was actually hospitalized for Lord knows what people did to him. Kind of crazy. But he was ruled out, so no Jack, but those items were stolen from his cabin. Ten days after the bodies were discovered, these items were actually found in a cave approximately three miles from Camp Scott. What was in this said cave? Well, a lot, including items that were stolen from Jack's ranch and some writing on the wall. You want to know what that writing said? The real killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. What? Mm-hmm. Somebody wrote that on the wall of a cave. Getting some BTK vibes right now. Yeah, some things are going on. Okay, June 16th, we're going to cue the Wonder Dogs. You heard me right. We brought in some dogs from Pennsylvania that led them to the path of the killer or killers. Are they German Shepherds? I think they were German Shepherds, actually. I did read Mm. that. There were three of these dogs, and... They did the damn thing, but I can't really talk about them too much because two out of the three dogs ended up passing away in freak accidents after a Cherokee medicine man actually put a curse on them. What? Why? What did they do? Basically, you'll realize that the Cherokee portion of this Cherokee medicine man's title and uh, the number one suspect that came about was Cherokee. It was kind of sad, though, because the dogs kept um, taking them on these paths, these killers' paths, and then they would just, like, lose the path. It was weird. In addition to the biological evidence recovered from the crime scene, authorities found semen on pillowcases near the victims' bodies. The FBI tested the sample in 1989, and they were not able to rule out their main suspect as the person who left the bodily fluids at the scene. So the tests were inconclusive. In 2008, the authorities decided to test the semen again in hopes that they could get more conclusive results. Unfortunately, after several decades, the DNA samples were just too degraded for technicians to create a profile from. There were actually three sets of fingerprints as well, and only one of them could be recovered. The other two were smudged. 
Okay, so June 18th, Sheriff Pete Weaver, who was the first person on the scene, was, um, he announced that the murder weapon had been identified, but the district attorney told the media outlets that they had no idea what he was talking about. What was he talking about? (laughs) The UPI reported later the murder weapon, in fact, was the crowbar that we talked about earlier that was found. Um, Basically, Sheriff Weaver and the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation were on completely different pages because... Even after differing opinions and statements about the murder weapon, Sheriff Weaver came out and said there was only one suspect, and the OSBI said that there were three. So nobody knows what the heck is going on because the sheriff's saying one thing and the OSBI is saying another thing. I'm personally going with the OSBI on this one. That's just me. On June 20th, the district attorney, Sid Wise, tells the media there are several suspects and further prove that Sheriff Weaver is being kind of whack, but technically since there's only one of the three fingerprints that were usable, um, I guess it was a picture perfect. Speaking of picture perfect, they found photos in the cave that had been developed by Jean Leroy Hart, and that's kind of when all hell broke loose. Frank Justice, who just happened to be an alcoholic criminal and friends with Hart, bragged about seeing the writing on the wall of the cave before the police discovered it. Why was he, where was he bragging? He was just bragging to everybody. Um, so that did point people right back at heart because this guy said, oh, yeah, the writing on the wall, I saw it. I done seen that. So obviously he was questioned but ruled out after a really weird and vague description of his whereabouts that evening. Frank, ju- Frank just was two sheets to the wind. Nobody really could <laughs> listen to Frank. But he did say that he saw that writing on the wall. In the I believe ca- him. In the cave. I believe him. <laughs> I believe him. So then a 600-person manhunt proceeded to play out in hopes of finding Gene Leroy Hart. So uh, what put a wrench in that was uh, <laughs> not only were many of the searchers drunk and carrying firearms. Why? Which apparently you were not supposed to be doing. The members of the American Indian Movement showed up to monitor the situation because Jean Leroy Hart was of Cherokee descent, as I mentioned. Things just were awry that for the search. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, not much came of this search. Nothing uh, ever does come from a drunken search. With firearms. With firearms. <laughs> so let's talk about Jean Leroy Hart for a hot second. Oh boy. Jean Leroy Hart was on the loose in Mays County, Oklahoma. He escaped jail four years ago, four years prior, not ago. He was on the run for four years. Yeah, straight up on the run for four years. He had been convicted of, wait for it, wait for it, kidnapping two pregnant women, raping one of them, and then people still adored him. Wait, what? Yes, I swear to goodness. People adored Jean Leroy Hart since he was a former high school football star and he was Cherokee. Okay, but he kidnapped and raped some pregnant peoples. Mm-hmm. Show sure enough. So after two days, they used, like, heat-seeking instruments. Nothing was successful. Um, the feds brought up, like, 40 agents to help with the investigation and got nothing, nowhere. On July 5th, a man that fit the description of Join... Join? Why do I keep saying its name wrong? <laughs> Gene Leroy Hart was spotted near the campsite. So they sent out those tracking dogs when they were still alive. God bless them. When they were on the trail, as I said, the sand, the sand, the sand, 
It's been a week, and it's only Tuesday, so I understand. The scent, not the scent, <laughs> disappeared in the woods. The next day, the autopsy reports of Michelle, Denise, and Lori were revealed. Get this. On July 29th, a private security team that was set to look after Camp Scott thinks they saw somebody in the woods and went to go investigate. Upon their return, they found a wet pair of Denise Milner's shoes and socks on the doorstep of the camp director's house in a bag. Yo. They, like, showed them to her mom. They were like, are these hers? And she was like, yes, those are hers. Someone was straight up toying with them. Yeah, okay. Speaking of toying with them, there was actually some really weird things that happened at the camp before all the campers got there. Um, The counselors were there, and they were the ones who told these stories. Uh, Apparently, there was some tents that were ransacked and, like, ripped up and stuff. But they were like, oh, nothing of it. What? (laughs) They really think nothing of anything. This makes Um, me so mad. Yeah, I know. There was even somebody walking around the camp, and they had to be, like, told to leave because they were, like, being creepy and weird. Oh, but I thought the camp had really secure gates. No, yeah, big gates and a big fence to keep everybody and animals out. Nope. Yeah, because animals will stay out of the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And this one is the worst one. So hold on to yourself. There was actually a donut box that the counselors, they got some donuts, and they went somewhere. The donut box had been emptied, And then they put the donut box on the doorstep, and when you opened it, it literally had the message, we're going to kill three girls in tent one. We're going to kill three girls in tent one. And nobody did anything about it? Nope. Opened the camp right up for regular summer. I just want to point out, too, that it says we're. I just want to point out that... There's four girls in a tent, too, so it's weird that he said three because then it ended up being being there were only three girls. Oh, I did not just think about that. I was stuck on the weird because they are always saying that it was just one person, and I for real thought it was a lot more than one person. There had to be more people. Come on. It says weird. There was multiple things that led to it being multiple people. Around the new year, they had reportedly spent around $138,000 just trying to find Hart to convict wow. him of the murders. They were, like, dead set that this was their guy. How is someone on the run from from jail or prison? I don't know. <laughs> For four years! I feel like they usually find those people in, like, two days. Not when he's cave hopping. The next month, they decided to release sketches of Hart to get more tips. And that they did three months later on April 6th, 1978 at 4.15 p.m., Jean Leroy Hart was arrested in the home of Sam Pigeon, 45 miles away from Camp Scott, in like a super remote area, kind of like a southeast corner of Cherokee country near Bunch, Oklahoma. That's far from the camp. Yeah, really far. 45 miles, to be exact. Um, Kind of gross, but remember when I told you about, you know, the eyeglasses being taken? From the random camper's tent? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, when he was arrested, it was noticed that he was wearing women's eyeglasses. That's fucking weird. Gross. Very bleh. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the trial. Oh, boy. It's a doozy. The trial lasted from March 19th to March 30th, 1979. According to GirlScoutMurders.com, there is no official transcript of this case, 
because when someone is acquitted, because Mr. Hart was acquitted, no trial transcript is obtained in regards to the Oklahoma statute. What we do know is that there were six men and six women on the jury for this case. Little fact, their deliberation only took five minutes. Five minutes. There were multiple counselors that testified and went over their findings and experiences that day. So the counselor that, you know, heard everything, the counselor that saw everything. She was on the stand and some other counselors as well. Hart had a large following of Cherokee on his side, creating community fundraisers, collecting donations for the Hart Hotel, which is what his defense headquarters was called. Was it in a cave? (laughs) It was not in a cave. The prosecution used evidence such as a strand of hair found on the duct tape that had kind of like the same general characteristics of Hart, but was not proven DNA. And the whole eyeglasses situation that matched up between his first offense, because he did that with his first offense, and then the evidence Wait, in this offense. He did the eyeglasses thing in his first offense? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? He took the lady's eyeglasses. What the? He's got a thing for women's eyeglasses. What is that? I need an explanation. I have none for you. It's disgusting. That's my explanation. The defense, however, blamed the sheriff for planting those pieces of evidence to make it look like Hart was the perfect suspect. Hart's mother said the same thing after law enforcement recovered those photographs that had been developed in his cave. She said that they were just getting pressured to find a suspect, so they planted everything. There was even another suspect brought up. His name was William Stevens. He was a convicted rapist in the area, but no one brought him up until the defense brought up a local waitress who claimed that this man was at the diner the morning the girls were murdered and appeared very nervous. Plus, an 11-year-old scout claimed to see him on the property of Camp Scott just days before the murders. Other witnesses also said that the red flashlight that they found was one lended to Stevens prior to the murders. Seems pretty sketchy to me. It doesn't really end there, though. So, a friend said that William Stevens showed up to his house after the killings with scratches on his arms and neck and even blood on his boots. Later, he confessed to his friend while they were drunk that October and, like, said that he did it. But none of the DNA matched him. To this day, no one has been convicted of the killings of these three girls. Most people are confident, especially Sheriff Weaver, that the and the OSBI, that Jean Leroy Hart actually murdered the girls, despite the jury finding him not guilty after just five minutes of deliberation. However, he did return to prison for his original crimes, where he then died of a heart attack on June 4th, 1979. Oh. Yeah. I hate when that happens. Yeah. The victim's parents believe justice just wasn't done for their daughters, and I would fully agree with that. Those little girls did not get with a, you know, the proper trial, the proper anything, really. According to the mothers of some of the victims, one of the reasons Hart was found not guilty was because he was Cherokee, you know? That that just doesn't seem like a right reason to not find somebody guilty. Yeah, no, not a justification for murdering three children. Yeah, they even said that they uh, rejoiced in the courtroom when he was not guilty. Okay, but at the end of the day, he kidnapped and raped a pregnant woman. Yeah, and no matter what, there's we're not talking about Jean Leroy Hart and his Cherokee descent. We're talking about three little girls who were murdered. You're going to cheer 
in the middle of the courtroom with their families with there. With their families there. Absolutely ridiculous. So, yeah, there's nobody responsible for this, and the three little girls did not get justice. And it's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. So that's final. So what do you think happened? Well, let me read you the profile for the killer. Okay. Again, if you ask me, Gene Leroy Hart was just a sketchy bitch, if that, if that makes sense. He just fits too many of the check marks. And William Stevens was just coincidentally an idiot that fit the defense's attempt to take the blame off of Hart. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. Yeah. On that note... The profile of somebody who would commit these crimes. Many people have come up with their own theories, including Oklahoma criminal psychologist Robert Phillips, Dr. Robert Phillips, my apologies, and uh, the signature profiling associates as well. They helped with cases like the West Memphis Three, which we are very familiar with. And so we are working with someone or someone's who have an inferiority complex, they fear rejection, they have a lot of depression and anger, they are sexual sadists with a mental illness that cannot be cured by modern medicine, they survive on savage and animal levels like aka the woods or caves. Hmm. According to Dr. Phillips, they only intended on killing one girl, which we did speak about how they kind of just murdered the other two girls to get to Denise is how it seemed. But then I'm also thinking in my head, like, that note clearly said they're going to kill three girls. So I don't know what to believe on that part. Anyway, don't get lost in that. Um, Speaking of getting lost, in the profile they mention that this kind of person would get lost in the crime and become a savage animal, but kind of snap back into it, realizing they might need to cover their tracks And that's why they tried to clean up the crime scene. Um, This person is clearly a narcissist. They're just taunting the camp before it even happens, writing on the cave, writing on the donut box. I think they tried to pin this on Gene Leroy Hart, not only because he was an escaped criminal, but uh, because he was familiar with the area and lived in the woods. I don't necessarily think he did it. But this is the profile of somebody who would commit those crimes. See, it's the eyeglasses for me. (laughs) It's the eyeglasses for me. I feel like he probably did it, but I think he had help. And I just want to know if this person was even under law enforcement's radar or if it's just like we literally have no idea who it is. The thing with me is like they had evidence, but nothing came of it. Well, they also fucked up the crime scene. So if they had a proper investigation things might have gone differently yeah i mean the fact that they even tried to retest it in 2008 and it just like didn't do anything like what what were they thinking so that's the oklahoma girl scout murders thank you for listening to my very depressing episode yeah see it's cases like this where there's a real possibility they will never be solved that just it does not sit right with me and there's so many things that happened that could have been done for all this to be avoided. Agreed. Like the amount of times that instances should have been reported to higher ups, that's just ridiculous. And then obviously law enforcement just being stupid. Yeah. Next week, we're going to have Erica back on the mic with a new episode. 
She's going to go over a missing persons case that's unsolved. Uh, This one is just bonkers, man, and I just don't understand it. So I can't wait to hear what Erica has to say next week. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you guys have any cases that you want us to cover, um, anything local or something that you're just obsessed with or something that's really crazy, you know I love the missing persons, go ahead and go on our website, crimeoncaffeine.com. You can go submit a case at the bottom. Uh, Just tell us a little bit about the case. Maybe attach an article so we can read about it. You can also just DM us on Instagram, Twitter, tweet us, whatever. We'll answer you. All of our usernames are crimeoncaffeine. All right. Thank you for listening, and we can't wait to can't wait to see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna lose my fucking hopefully, hopefully next week we'll have more sleep. Make sure you subscribe. Maybe leave us a review if you're feeling super friendly. And yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.